Last night, I watched the movie Just Mercy. Uh, It's based on Brian Stevenson's book of the same name, and it's the story of, of Brian's life. It's a true story based on Brian and his clients. Brian is a lawyer who has dedicated his life to ending mass incarceration and excessive punishment in the United States. The movie tells the story of one of his first major cases, the story of Walter McMillan. And although I've read the book several years ago, um, I, last night, I usually don't cry during movies, but last night I literally cried by myself, my family's out of town, at home, on my couch, at the fresh telling of the injustice continually perpetuated against Walter and his family. I won't tell you all the details, but I encourage you to watch it, and I encourage you to have the Kleenex ready as you do. But that wasn't the only thing that put a lump in my throat as I watched that movie. There was another man by the name of Herb Richardson. And the sentence handed down by the court landed him on death row. And while he's serving his term, he gets a letter from the state naming the exact day and time that the court will carry out its orders. He has no family. And so the only person who meets him before that time is Brian, his lawyer. And he tells Brian, today has been a funny day. Most people don't get to sit and think about all day about it being their last day of life. It's a sobering statement for all kinds of reasons. And not the least of which is that we typically don't like to think about things like that. A statement like that hits us. It drives deep into our soul because we know that death is not the way it's supposed to be. It's disorienting to all that is good and right and true. And because it's disorienting, we don't like to think about it. Tragedy, suffering, death, those are things that happen to other people. And when they do happen to us, We want to move on as quickly as possible to not have to think about it. Yet today in our text, this is the very thing Jesus is telling us to consider. Jesus wants us to consider the most tragic events in life, not with a passing thought so we can get on to something else, but no, with a sober, steady gaze. But his goal is not to disorient us. The goal of Christ this morning is to reorient us to the most important and greatest realities in all of life. With that in mind, let's read Luke chapter 13. Uh, Beloved, as I would always encourage you to have your Bible open in front of you, as we read God's word and listen to the preaching of it. Listen to Luke chapter 13. There were some present at that very time who told him, that is Jesus, about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. 
or those 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them? Do you think they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told them this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put manure on it. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. It's God's word. A weighty passage of scripture. Uh, Jesus doesn't always tell us what we want to hear, does he? But he does tell us all that we need to know. And that describes much of Jesus' teaching, specifically in the 12th chapter that comes right before this. He's not dispensing trite, cliche sayings. He's providing life-giving words. And now, when, when he hears about some of the most tragic events in all of life, what do we hear him say? Unless you repent, you will likewise perish. And in case we miss it, he says it twice. Now, we've seen the tenderness of Jesus throughout Luke. And so we know this is not the only thing he has to say about suffering. But it is an important thing that we need to hear. We could say that Jesus is unbalanced and unnuanced in this passage so that we might hear what he has to say. Is it uncomfortable? Yes. We could might even say it's offensive. But what I want us to see is Jesus' words are not harsh and judgmental. They're, they're penetrating and probing because he cares about our future. He's a compassionate soul physician. He wounds so that he might heal. And so, yes, Jesus knows hard words are sometimes needed to make soft hearts. And in this passage, he's essentially asking us two questions. Will you repent or perish? That's verses one through five. Will you bear fruit or be cut down? That's verses six through nine. Let's look at each of those and just to set your expectations because the second builds on the first, we'll spend most of our time on that first question. Will you repent or perish? So again, beloved, remember the context from last week's passage, verses 35 through 59 of chapter 12, Jesus is teaching on final judgment. He's encouraging the faithful and he warns those who persist in their rebellion. He says, blessed are those who wait for my return, cursed are those who don't. And then in verses 54 through 56, Jesus rebukes some in the crowd because they don't seem to recognize the sign of the times. So apparently they refuse to listen to Jesus about who he is and the judgment is to come. They're not interpreting him correctly. And so Jesus rebukes them. And to make sure they understand what he's saying, in verses 57 through 59, Jesus basically says, don't delay in getting right with God. 
Eternity is either everlasting joy in God's presence or eternal judgment forever separated from God. Those are the words that come right before our passage. So to put it in familiar language, Jesus is saying, listen, everybody spends eternity somewhere, in either heaven or in hell. That brings us to chapter 13. And we have some people who've been listening to Jesus and they chime in into the conversation. And they tell Jesus about some Galileans who were killed by Pilate while offering sacrifices. We don't know much about this event. It's the only time it's referenced in scripture. But apparently there were some Jews from Galilee, it's likely Passover, and they come and they're offering sacrifices at the temple and Pilate, the Roman governor, ruthlessly has them murdered. This is essentially a, a terrorist attack. Now, why would these people bring up this incident? Here's why. I believe they were trying to correct Jesus and justify themselves. See, they were saying to Jesus, no, Jesus, we, we do understand the sign of the times. And we understand that those Galileans killed by Pilate was God's judgment on them. They're wicked sinners. But we're better than them. So we don't have to worry about God's judgment. These people draw a direct connection between suffering and sin. There's an example of this found in John chapter 9 when, when they see a blind man and, and they say, uh, Jesus or Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? They're making this connection. They thought sinners suffer and the pious prosper. They believe that victims of calamities and misfortunes were guilty of extraordinary sins. And since they hadn't experienced suffering, God must be pleased with them. That's why Jesus answers the way he does. We'll unpack that in a minute. But think about this. In the midst of what Jesus is saying, final judgment, they're not thinking about God's grace. They're not even thinking about their own sin. They're thinking about somebody else's. They're preoccupied with the sin of others. Their goodness, their moral superiority was so self-satisfying. So when Jesus speaks of judgment, they justify themselves thinking they are good enough to escape the very thing Jesus is talking about. It's the same way many people think today. The way to escape God's judgment is through your goodness. As best I can tell, every other religion that I know of besides Christianity, works this way. Be good enough, and you'll escape God's judgment. But Jesus will have none of that. The Christian faith, the good news of the gospel, has no room for self-righteous comparison. It has no room for looking at another person and saying, I'm inherently better, I'm inherently more worthy, I'm inherently more deserving than them. Yet, if we're honest, self-righteousness still tempts us and hides in our own hearts, doesn't it? If you're like me, you can easily become smug and self-righteous. We can easily attribute the good things in our life. We can easily attribute the privileges that we may have in our life to our own hard work, our own discipline, our own awesomeness. I encourage you to evaluate your heart here. Do you take some quiet, dis, quiet self-satisfaction that your life is not in much disarray 
as your coworkers or your neighbors? Or are you quick to recognize this is God's grace in your life? Do you think that you're a better Christian than that person, whoever just came to mind, because they do that or they don't do this? When something goes well in your life, are you quick to praise God? Or do you just congratulate yourself for being awesome? See, that's what these people here are doing. They're trying to justify their superiority by judging others, and how does Jesus respond? He confronts their self-righteousness. Look at verse 2. Do you think these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he presses his point. He tells about another tragic event. The Tower of Siloam falling and killing 18 people. So whereas the the Galileans suffered the hands of another man, the Tower of Siloam was a natural act, or we could say at the hand of God. Jesus is upping the ante. And what does he conclude? Verse four, do you think that they, that the people in Siloam, were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. No matter the type of suffering and no matter who suffers, Jesus draws the same conclusion. Are some people better than others? No, I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. See, these people assume, and, and we, we have a tendency to assume God owes us a nice, comfortable life. Jesus assumes the opposite. Jesus is telling us, instead of being amazed that tragedies happen, be amazed every time you're spared. One of the lessons of suffering is this. It is meant to lead us to repentance, not gloat and self-righteousness. Before we press in on that, let me address something else here. Notice that Jesus does not equate suffering with personal sin. He flatly refuses the idea that tragedies in a person's life are the direct result of their sin. Yes, that can be the case, but that's not what Jesus is saying. Always equating personal sin to physical suffering is karma, not Christianity. Yes, it's true. Suffering is from sin generally. Because of humanity's rebellion against God, the world is broken, it's fractured. It's not the way it's supposed to be. Tragedies come, death happens. But we have to be very careful in drawing a straight line from suffering to a person's specific sin. And the opposite is also true. We have to be very careful in drawing a straight line from prosperity to God's blessing. Because here's the truth. There are many sinners who will skip their way into hell and many saints who will limp into heaven. Beloved, in your suffering, 
or when misfortune comes upon you or your loved ones or even maybe your children. Don't heap imagined guilt upon yourself thinking somehow God is punishing you for some sin. Your heavenly father's not like that. We may not know why various trials and tribulations afflict us, but we know it's not because God is punishing us. And we know that because Christ Jesus paid for all of our disobedience. And we know that payment is sufficient because Christ rose from the dead. And so it is finished. The debt is paid. Your relationship with God is restored. And in Christ, God is not a random mean judge doling out punishment. He's a devoted father who loves you and cares for you and cherishes you and wants your everlasting good. Take heart, beloved. And so we learn from this passage that suffering is not necessarily the result of personal sin, but that is not the main point of this passage. The main point is summed up in the twice uttered phrase by Jesus. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. You see what Jesus is saying? While all suffering is not necessarily caused by sin, all suffering should wake us up to repentance. Jesus tells these people, like, let's, let's not talk about the dead so you can justify yourself. Your biggest problem is not their sin. It's yours. Tragedy, calamities are God's painful, merciful, graphic summons to repent. It's not all they are, but it's not less. That brings us to this very moment. I don't know all that God is up to with this global pandemic. I don't know all that God is up to with the political, social, racial unrest. It would be foolish for me to say God is decisively decisively doing that or he's judging that person for this. I don't know. But I do know this. The suffering of this time has a message for us all. Unless you, unless I, unless we, unless we repent, we will likewise perish. It's a hard message. So one of God's purposes when tragedies occur is to remind us of the fragility of life that we might evaluate where we are with God. So has that been at least one of your thoughts? As you grow weary from quarantine, as you mourn systemic injustices and personal racism, as you read about suffering, malnutrition, natural disasters around the globe, have you had this thought? Lord, 
Life is fragile. My life is but a breath on a cool morning. It will soon vanish. I could die at any time. Lord, give me the grace to repent, to be amazed that you spared me yet again, that I might reorient myself to Christ and treasure him through it all. Has that been at least one of your thoughts? See, we don't like to think about death like that. I heard a guy on TV once refer to the dead as metabolically challenged. What's that even mean? And think about our own language. We use terms like, he lost his mom. They passed. We do all we can to not mention that word, death. But as I said last time I preached, right now all around us we have symbols. Every time you put a face mask on, every time you use hand sanitizer, you are admitting that your life is fragile. Every time. And so let it be a wake-up call to repentance. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, will you repent? And, and notice a few things about his words. Notice who should repent. Unless you repent, you will all perish. There are no ifs. There are no maybes. You will all. Jesus assumes we have all rebelled against God. All of us. See, we, we tend to, to minimize our rebellion by comparing it to others, or we, we only think about rebellion as what we do. But it's so much more than that. It's what we love. It's disordered love. So sin is anything, anything that minimizes or ignores the glory or greatness or goodness of God. It's God belittling idolatry to put anything before him or anything in the place of him. And it's important to remember those can be good things. We can put our job, our spouse, our desire for a relationship, money, exercise. We can put any of those good things before God. But it doesn't matter what we prefer to God, only that we prefer it to him. And that's idolatry. That's rebellion. And with that sobering understanding, we're all guilty, myself the foremost. Yes, there are differences between us, but they're only differences of degree, not kind. And those differences don't really matter when we're standing before a perfectly holy God. So comparing our sin with each other to, to prove our goodness to God is like you and I standing outside staring at the moon and we begin to argue about who is taller. Who cares? You probably are a few inches taller than me. But when the moon is 238,900 miles away, who cares about a few inches? So much more when we begin to compare ourselves to God, the eternal, perfect, holy one. This should humble us, beloved. Comparing your sin with another person's is useless. 
We should never find satisfaction in comparing ourselves to others and saying, well, at least I'm not like them. No. When we rightly understand who we are, unless you repent, you will perish. Unless we understand that, we'll be self-righteous. But when we understand it, we'll be humble and we'll love and we'll serve. This should also make us hopeful. See, the categories for Jesus are not good and bad. They're repentant sinner and unrepentant sinner. That's good news. Because that means no matter how bad I've made a mess of my life, nothing can keep me from God. Through repentance, the Father welcomes me back no matter what. And it should make us hopeful for that person you're thinking about, oh, they could never be saved. That's not true. Anyone can be saved. If God saved you, if he saved me, His redeeming grace is not too far gone for anybody. The gracious gift of repentance is available for whoever calls upon Jesus. And so we can be humble and we can be hopeful as we think about repentance. That leads us to an important question, doesn't it? What is repentance? It's an important question because eternity hangs on that question. I say eternity hangs on repentance because of that word perish. When Jesus says, if you don't repent, you'll perish, he's not saying, hey, listen, you're going to die just like the, the Galileans or the um, people in Jerusalem. We all can't die like that. Remember the context? Jesus is talking about eternal judgment. To perish is something more than to die physically. So we can think of a, an often quoted verse, John three sixteen. right? So for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, so that whoever believes in him would not what? Perish, but have what? Eternal life. Perish is contrasted with eternal life. So perishing is eternal punishment for people who do not repent. We saw this last week when Jesus was preaching. We saw it the the week before when Jesus says, fear him who after he has killed you has authority to cast into hell. So so take note of Jesus' words. Unless you repent, you will all perish. Jesus is not offering good advice. He's announcing news. True news. Facts. And notice what Jesus isn't saying. He isn't saying, listen, there are many ways to God and many ways to heaven, and I just happen to be teaching one of those. The claim of Christ is unique and exclusive. In his excellent book, Gentle and Lowly, Dane Orland writes this. If we never come to Jesus, we will experience a judgment so fierce it will be like a double-edged sword coming out of his mouth at us. If we do come to him, as fierce as his lion-like judgment would have been against us, so deep will his lamb-like tenderness be for us we will be enveloped in one or the other. To no one will Jesus be neutral, end quote. Only repentance can make you ready to meet God. So we need to be clear, what is it? What isn't it? Well, repentance isn't simply confessing your sins. It starts there, but it's more. Repentance isn't moral resolve. It's not, I'm going to try harder and do better next time. That's not repentance. Repentance isn't the same as regret or remorse. You can feel sad for your sin and not be truly repentant of your sin. 
Repentance isn't just transactional, admitting we broke God's law. Repentance is relational, recognizing we broke God's heart. Repentance, as we've said often, is not a rude intrusion into your life, but a lavish invitation to the fullness of joy. That's what repentance is. Uh, Literally, the word repent just means to change. Change your heart and your mind. Not, Not a superficial change of opinion, but a deep transformation. We could say repentance is turning, trusting, and treasuring. Repentance is turning away from our sin, in faith, trusting God is gracious enough to forgive our sin, and treasuring Christ is better than our sin. So repentance believes God's promise of happy obedience brings more joy than Satan's claim that disobedience brings true happiness. So do you see, beloved, repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin. Repentance doesn't just say no to sin because it's bad. It says that, but it also in faith says yes to Christ because he is better. It's turning from sin, trusting in Christ, trusting and treasuring him as your all-satisfying savior. And and remember the context here. Jesus is is talking to self-righteous people. And so a lot of our repentance is not just those bad things. It's often good things that we place our hope and identity in as well. So sin curves us in on ourselves, And so if sin curves us in on ourselves, repentance bends us out toward God. It makes us look at God. Repentance starts with God. It starts with the justice of God that demands our repentance and the grace of God that delivers us in our repentance. So in justice, God cannot just sweep away our sin. He would not be just. But in his loving grace, God sent his son Jesus to do what we could not, what we did not want to do. And at the cross, justice and love meet in the person of Christ as he hangs, paying for our sin. So that when we repent and trust in Jesus alone, we're justified. We're declared righteous. We are adopted as God's beloved children. We're embraced by our big brother, Jesus. And we're sealed and secured by the Holy Spirit. That's what happens when we repent. And so true repentance is a work of the Holy Spirit wrought in our souls to bring conviction of sin and wonder of grace. True repentance knows our sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. So Jesus says, yes, I tell you, everyone who repents will enjoy eternal life now and forevermore. Think about that. The people that Jesus is speaking to don't necessarily want to repent, yet Jesus is inviting them to do so. The same thing is true for us. Before we ever thought of repenting, before the foundation of the world, God sent his son to redeem his people. Here's what that means. God is more ready to forgive your sin than you are to repent of it. That's amazing. 
God is more ready to forgive your sin than you are to repent of it. Let the kindness and the mercy of God lead you to repentance. The very fact that you're listening to this message is an act of God's kindness. He has spared you yet again. You woke up. That is God's grace. Will you repent or perish? My friend's not trusting in Christ. Uh, First, I wonder what you're thinking at the moment. Like, did I really tune in to listen to this guy talk about repentance and sin and all this religious jargon? I understand that. I lived the first 26 years of my life as not a Christian. I understand that. But will you consider the words of Jesus in this passage? Will you consider your own life? If you think Jesus is just a good teacher, or there's just, he's just one of many ways to God in heaven, Jesus didn't think that. So let me encourage you to evaluate Jesus on his own words. And just consider these things. If you want to talk more about that, ask the person who invited you to this live stream. If somehow you just happen to stumble on this this morning, click the follow-up button and we'll follow up with you. But eternity, literally eternity is in the balance. And for my Christian brothers and sisters, the question for you is not so much, have you repented? But are you repenting? True repentance is not just a past profession, but a current practice. Uh, In fact, the verb repent in verse 3 is a present tense active verb. So it it could literally be translating, unless you keep repenting. Repentance is initial when you become a Christian and ongoing as a Christian. So can you, Christian, can you remember the last specific sin you repented of to God? Can you remember the last time you confessed the way you hurt or offended another person and you went to them and you used your words to say, I sinned against you, will you forgive me? Can you remember that? Do you invite others to ask you hard questions so that you might evaluate waywardness in your life? For the kiddos listening in, I want you to see that a Christian isn't just a person who believes in Jesus or even believes that Jesus rose from the dead after dying for sin. A Christian is those things. But a Christian can also explain specific ways they've disobeyed God and sought forgiveness from God. A true Christian can talk about how they've repented, turned from their sin, and now because they love Jesus, they deal with their sin and suffering and relationships in a new way. In some ways, it's easy to put on Jesus. It's harder to repent and put off our sin that we might love Jesus supremely. For all of our church family, you see that repentance isn't optional to the Christian faith. Repentance is the divine stamp of regeneration. 
You can no more be a Christian without repentance than you can be an ocean without water. You can no more be a Christian without repentance more than you can be music without sound. Repentance is the rhythm of the Christian. That's why when we pray as a church, we repent of our sins corporately and then rehearse the goodness of the gospel. It's why in our community groups, we set aside specific time for encouragement and accountability so we can ask each other questions, so we can create a proactive space for confession and repentance and apply the balm of the gospel to each other's soul so that we might be remembered. Like, yes, I need to repent, but Jesus is better than my sin and I'm forgiven and declared righteous and loved in Christ. In verses one through five, Jesus is telling us with strong and compassionate language. He's saying, listen, these Galileans and those people in Siloam, they didn't get what they didn't deserve. No, they got what we all deserve. And that should wake us up to repentance so we might rest in Christ no matter what we face. So will you repent and live or perish? And true repentance bears fruit which leads us to our second question. Will you bear fruit or be cut down? Look at verses six through nine again. And he told them this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vineyard, to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put manure on it. Then if, I should, then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. So here in this parable, you have an owner, a vine dresser, and a fig tree. Of the fig tree, three years old, the owner expects to find fruit, but upon inspection, there is none. He tells the caretaker, cut it down. But the caretaker pleads with the owner, not yet, give it a bit more time, and we'll see if it bears fruit. Well, what are we supposed to gather from this? Well, uh, the fig tree represents the religious people Jesus is talking to and us. Anyone who claims to worship God. And yet Jesus addresses a, a problem. He says, these people who claim to worship me but their life is barren of any real fruit, any real love for God. They might take the form of a fig tree, but upon closer conspection, there is no real fruit. And the owner has every right to cut down that tree, but he doesn't. This owner is merciful and kind. He waits. He's patient. But he won't wait forever. In this parable, Jesus is pressing home the, the true nature of repentance and the true nature of God. God is the merciful owner. We're the trees. Repentance is the first fruit followed by many others. And Jesus is asking, will you bear fruit or be cut down? True repentance bears fruit. Remember, beloved, this is the same thing John was preaching back in chapter three. He told them, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Again, to be clear, Jesus is not saying, hey, you're saved by your works. Go do enough good works so you'll be saved. No, we're not saved by good works, but we are saved for good works. 
our roots in Christ, nourished through the Holy Spirit's life-giving water of repentance and faith, necessarily produces fruit in the Christian's life. So true repentance results not just in empty words that can say the right things about God and his grace, but actual behavior change and worshipful response to his grace. Intentional, regular, earnest, Christ-dependent, Holy Spirit-empowered, a joyful working out of our salvation is a requirement. It's the fruit of repentance. And fruit comes over time and by degrees. We cannot microwave growth in Jesus any more than you can microwave a nice gourmet meal. Fruit in the Christian life is measured in years, not days. That's why God's patient, but he's not patient forever. So as one of your pastors, I know there's at least three groups of people among the members of our church. First, many of you are producing a harvest. Uh, You're growing in Christ. The gospel is warm. Prayer is delicious. Giving is cheerful. There's, there's luscious gospel fruit in your life. You care for the vulnerable. You fight for justice. You disciple children. You serve each other. You evangelize the lost. You weep with the wounded. You call back the wayward. There's a thousand other fruits. I praise God for that. You encourage me and you challenge me. And by God's grace, keep producing fruit. Second, there's another group. There's some of you who need to be more concerned about the lack of fruit in your life. Your relationship with God is defined more by a past experience and past confession than present fruit. At some point you made a decision for Jesus, but there's limited fruit of actually being a disciple of Jesus. Maybe you're like me when I was not a Christian, but I knew about grace And you may draw on grace, just like I did. And you think grace is an excuse for your sinful behavior rather than fuel for your worship. It's God's job to forgive you, you think. Or maybe Jesus has just become dull and his people are boring to you. And so you kind of like the idea of heaven but actually fellowshipping with other Christians or committing to a local church or serving others? Eh, not so much. It's a lack of fruit. And with tender compassion, I tell you you should be concerned. That's what Jesus is saying. So if this is you, ask God to give you a desire to love Jesus supremely and love others sacrificially. Ask God to give you wisdom to know what it looks like to walk in true, true fruitful obedience. Talk to another member of the church. Talk to a trusted brother or sister and invite them to evaluate your life and ask, do you see waywardness in me? Can you help me understand what repentance looks like? And then plead with the Spirit to uphold with you a willing spirit to walk in joyful obedience. There's another group. And this is all of you who are too hard on yourself. You're so aware of the ways you fail, you don't see any fruit at all. 
And I don't think that's what Jesus would have you take from this passage. Yes, you should inspect your life for fruit, but you should not become so introspective that all you see is your failures. Again, if that's you, let me, inv- let me encourage you to invite another community group member, a-, a trusted friend in the church, and just ask them, where do you see God's grace at work in my life? Can you help me see where the Holy Spirit is at work shaping me to be more like Jesus? And then when they point those things out, praise God together for the fruit that the Holy Spirit is bringing forth in your life. Finally, there's another group. There's some of you presuming upon God and his grace altogether. You may not be thinking that, but the very fact that you're breathing, alive, watching this sermon is God's grace and kindness to you. And Jesus is telling you, friend, the Lord is patient, but his patience will not last forever. Don't mistake the patience of God with apathy toward your sin. God's kindness is not meant to lead you to indifference, but to repentance. Don't say, I'll repent tomorrow. I'll repent next week. Don't presume upon God's kindness. He doesn't owe you tomorrow. He doesn't even owe you this afternoon. See, God is not your butler and you ring the bell when you're ready to repent and he comes running. If God is working on your heart, Repent now. Today is the day of salvation. Turn from your rebellion. Trust in Christ. If you had looked to him, paid for that on the cross and rose again and treasure Christ is better than it all. Jesus is asking, will you repent and bear fruit or be cut off? And he's not saying this because he wants to scare you. His words sting, but it's the sting of love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. He's kind and he's merciful. He's inviting me, he's inviting you, he's inviting us to repent so that we might not perish, but enjoy him and enjoy the world as it was always meant to be when heaven comes to earth. On that day, wonder of wonders, there will be no more tragedies. There will be no more sadness. There will be no more disease. And there will be no more death. That's what Jesus is inviting us to. Well, the parable ends quite abruptly, doesn't it? We don't know what happens to the tree. Will it bear fruit? Or will it be cut down? How about you? How will your story end? How will we, how will you answer Jesus' questions? Will you repent and live or perish? Will you repent and bear fruit or be cut down? Will you embrace the mercy of God shown to you in Christ that you might enjoy the immeasurable riches of his kindness towards you in Christ now and forevermore. 
may God give us the grace to repent and live. Let's pray. Father, we come and I acknowledge these are hard words and yet it's your kindness that you gave them to us. Jesus, we're so thankful that you love us enough to speak hard things. And Holy Spirit, we pray that you would grant us the gift, the grace of repentance that we might treasure Christ. Father, I, I pray if I have erred, if I've said anything that's untrue, that it would not be remembered. But where I have spoken truth, even when it's offensive or uncomfortable, let us not let us not ignore it just because we don't like it. Remind us of the sweeter and the greater treasure that's found in Jesus. Teach us these days, O oh Lord. Teach us to be a people who repent that our joy in Christ might be full. It's in His name that we pray. Amen.